In this episode of Influencers, award-winning author Michael Lewis. CDC kind of demonstrated that it wasn't a Centers for Disease Control. It's like more a Centers for Disease Observation and Reporting. Uh, they, they don't, they're not, they're not, they've kind of gotten out of business of controlling disease. There's this enormous pressure for people to masquerade as experts when they actually aren't the expert. I think that if in some weird world uh, for millennia we've been using Bitcoin and someone invented the US dollar, they'd say, oh my God, this is so much better. It's, this is not, it's, they're fixing a problem that doesn't exist. And welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Michael Lewis, award-winning author and journalist and host of the podcast, Against the Rules, which recently returned for its third season. Michael, great to see you. Welcome. Good to see you, Andy. So let's talk about uh, Against the Rules and your latest book, The Premonition, which both explore the role of experts and how their knowledge gets received by powerful political figures in the public. So is something wrong and broken between the relationship between experts and the public? And if so, what's at stake, Michael? So I think there's a lot that's broken between the, in the relationship between the experts and the public. Um, and what's at stake is sort of like knowledge getting into the right heads at the right time when decisions are being made. Um, the, the way we the way we deal with it in the podcast is it's it's sort of like seven separate stories sort of suggesting separate seven separate problems um but but i'll give you an example that's the that, that, kind of that was what got me going it's really interesting how in certain spheres of american life the experts are clearly getting better and yet at the same time the people who use the experts are more dubious of them, questioning of them, less likely to take their advice. I mean, the most obvious example is medicine. Uh, that you, know, you went to a doctor 100 years ago, he was as likely to kill you as he was to help you. And the medical profession has just gotten better and better and better. And um, you're, you're better off going to a doctor now than ever in history. But you talk to doctors even before the pandemic, I mean, never mind the mess that is the pandemic response. Um, they'll tell you that like the bane of their existence was people walking in who had read something on WebMD, who as a result refused to either acknowledge the diagnosis or respond to the diagnosis or even listen to the doctor. And, um, and that there was just like this confusion in, in the users of the expertise caused by access to information. That, so medicine's like an obvious example and every doctor will tell you this is a problem. But like, take a really simple example where you think, how could that be a problem? Um, weathermen. One of the characters in our in the in the show is a guy who an Alabama meteorologist who's been doing it for fifty years. Guy's name is James Spann. Great, colorful character. But he said, you know, when he started, he was he he knew very little. That he was like he'd open the window decide what the weekend can tell everybody what the weather was. His, his 10 day forecast was useless. You might as well just guess. His three day forecast was like a third as accurate as it is now. He couldn't tell people where tornadoes were coming or when they were coming or where they would touch down. You know, it was just like, it was really primitive. He said, but on the screen, on the television, he was encouraged to be unbelievably confident. He said it was the Ron Burgundy era. 
like project total certainty about this forecast he really wasn't so sure about. And he says, what's happened over time is that both because of the ability to gather and analyze data, weather data, the, the forecasts have gotten a lot, lot better. I mean, amazingly better. But he's expressing them in, in more probabilistic terms with less certainty. And he says, do you think that's part of the reason why as time has gone on, even as they've gotten better, he gets more grief when, when they go wrong. So it's like there's an expectation has been created that is not being met. And if he says, I don't know, there's a 20% chance of rain and it rains, he gets a thousand letters saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they're never going to listen to him again. And you see this practically, I'll shut up, but you say, you say this practically play out when like tornadoes rip across K Kentucky people are better warned than they've ever been warned. And, you know, 80 people die because they didn't listen. Uh, yep. So that's, that's what's at stake. Is this because of misinformation and disinformation on the internet? I mean, it certainly sounds like that's at least most of, or much of the case when it comes to medicine, but maybe not so much with this weather phenomenon you were talking about. And what is other, it? and other phenomenon uh, like that. Um, so I think it's, it's like, there's, look, there is in the air, in the atmosphere, like general distrust of authority. Authority hmm. figures have not had a good time of it the last 50 years. Um, so there's that. But I actually think part of it, of the story, is the change in the, in the not just the nature of the expertise, but the, the way it's presented. Like weather is maybe the exception because it's, it has, has always been probabilistic. It always is, it's always been 80% chance of rain. Um, but, you know, political forecasting hasn't been or sports forecasting hasn't been. It isn't that, it didn't used to be that Hillary Clinton had a 77% chance of winning, right? right? And, and I think people don't, essentially the experts are more, much more overtly acknowledging that their expertise is probabilistic, which means that they're dealing with an un inherently uncertain world that's not perfectly knowable. They just know it a bit better than they used to know it, but they're expressing the uncertainty along with it. They know it a bit better because for the, you know, it's a relatively recent phenomenon that you can gather and analyze huge piles of data. Um, and people who receive the expertise have trouble thinking probabilistically. I mean, I think you can even say this is true about medicine. Um, medicine's probabilistic. I mean, there's a chance a vaccine will make you sick. It's just the probabilities are really on the side of taking the vaccine. Uh, but, and so people, people are sort of deterministic devices in a, in a probabilistic world. And they, get they kind of get wrong-footed when, when they're given, they don't, they don't understand that they don't understand the prediction. They it's a 80% chance of rain and it's sunny, you're an idiot. Not 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 two out of ten times it was it wasn't supposed to rain. Um that, I think that happens over and over. And I and I and I think that because I saw this with Moneyball when I was working on Moneyball. Like the thing that the old baseball guys couldn't get through their head was these this probabilistic judgment. They want it on off. Is he a major league star or is he not a major league star? It, you know, can he hit, can he not hit? Uh, and not, not like uh, there's an 80% chance he's going to be 10% above replacement value. <laughs> yeah, I, that's sort of a paradox too with baseball stuff because he figured they'd be pretty good at understanding that given like the guy hits 236 in double A. 
I mean, right? So get it? Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's fascinating. I mean, it doesn't sound easily solved either. Um, and I, I want to, though, switch over and ask you a little bit about the premonition when you talked about um, the pandemic and experts in the federal government prepared for the possibility, there's that word again, of a pandemic, but weren't listened to when COVID arrived. Who was to blame for that? Was it the individuals at the top or institutions like the CDC or both? So for a moment to keep this as not like nonpartisan as possible, um, they're actually like these, these structural problems in the way we govern ourselves. And one of them is this lack of continuity in government um, over the past, I don't know, 50 or so years, there has been a drift at the top of the government and not just in the White House, but in all the agencies that manage the existential risks that we all have hovering in the background at any given time. Um, there's been a drift of the management from being career civil servants who are per there permanently to presidential appointees who are there for 18 months uh, because it takes them forever to get confirmed by the Senate and when the president is out of the White House, they hold another. So there are 4,000 and something of these people now. Um, that, that happened at the top of the Centers for Disease Control in the 1980s. They changed the job from a career civil servant to presidential appointee. And um, that combined with the rancor in our politics means that when one lot of people come in and sweep out a whole other lot of people who, who are going out, with those people going out, like all this knowledge goes. Um, and in this particular case, it was a Republican administration, uh, the Bush administration, that crafted the, the, the pandemic plan. Bush, Bush was freaked that we didn't have one after he'd endured 9-11 and Katrina and like, he's like, what's gonna happen next? And these doctors, not political people, came in and did a really interesting, I mean, they essentially turned themselves into pandemic experts and, um, and, main, and stayed together, not just through the Bush administration, but through Obama administration, at, they were kind of present and involved in Zika outbreaks and Ebola outbreaks. I mean, they really knew a lot. And they knew a lot also about the like, problems of communicating strategy to the American people. That, you know, there was, they had a breadth to their understanding. And these people who would have been the natural people to sort of, not that they're the only people, but there would have been a natural crowd of people to, uh, to run a pandemic response, had in fact, been basically badged into the Trump White House in the beginning of the administration by a guy named Tom Bossert, who was in Homeland Security, who knew of them from way back when. And so in the beginning of the Trump administration, the, the, the link to the knowledge was there. But then Trump cleaned house. John Bolton came in, fired Tom Bossert, and people forgot these people ever existed. And it was so this lack of continuity in like knowledge uh, and expertise it, the government is one of the problems. Um, uh, and it's, it, you, could, you could go some way to fixing it by restoring the permanent civil service status to some of these jobs that are naturally permanent civil service and just so that you don't lose that continuity. So that, that's, you know, that's, that's at least part of it. I think there's another big thing though, that, you know, these things like pandemic comes around once a century or whatever, these kinds of things. Um, the kind of people who, who deal with, who, who 
might be kind of considered experts on the like battlefield command and disease control, which has been very much in the back of American minds for a long time, are our local public health officers. They're because they're actually doing it. You don't pay much attention to them, but you know, in your neighborhood, there might be a multi-drug resistance tuberculosis outbreak. They would actually cause you a lot of inconvenience if it got to you. And there's some public health officers, they're shutting it down, sometimes with a great deal of controversy. And um, those people, because it had never been a big deal, became increasingly low status people with a lot less, with not great resources. And their, 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 their low status made it, I think, really hard for us to hear them, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. And they were people we needed to hear from. And even now, you turn on the TV and you see people yakking it away, including myself, about the pandemic. It, it, those are the people who should be yakking away about the pandemic. And they're not on the television set. Um, it, it's, it's kind of funny how status blinds us to expertise. Uh, we think the important person is the one who knows. And in, in these cases, like these sorts of problems, often the person who knows is going to be kind of low down in the society. Yeah. How's the Biden administration doing now? What, how would you assess what's going on today? You know, it's funny. I've been, I, I've been, I've, been, I've returned to my status as, uh, as civilian <laughs> since the books come out. And, and I watch it just through the newspapers. I'm not writing about it. Um, I'd say better in like honestly confronting the, the magnitude of the problem and trying to persuade the American people to do the right thing, like get vaccinated, better in that sense. I don't think they've actually grappled with the deep issue. And I say that because you don't see them fighting, for example, the Senate's um, inclination to dump a bunch of money onto the CDC as currently structured. CDC kind of demonstrated that it wasn't a Centers for Disease Control. It's like more a Centers for Disease Observation and Reporting. Uh, they, they don't, they're not, they're not, they've kind of gotten out of business of controlling disease. It's controversial, it's political, it's unpleasant. It requires, you know, it requires real kind of leadership that they, they, they have a hard time providing as a politicized institution. So you don't really want to give them $8 billion and say, just use, do more of the same. You want to sort of build other structures. Now, in fairness, um, inside the CDC, they're trying to build a structure that we should have had long ago, which is kind of like a National Weather Service for disease that, that, that we should have better predictability. And there's no reason, you know, some years from now, we won't have like models that say, uh oh, watch out in Thailand right now. There's, it looks like there's a new pathogen that might emerge, that, that kind of thing. And it would go a long way to stopping pandemics before they happened. Um, that, that, so they've, they understand that the need for that. I'm not sure inside the CDC is the best place to do it, uh, but, but it, I, I'm at least seeing it's a, there's lots of signs of intelligent life. Uh, and, but you're dealing with, they're, they're dealt a different hand than the Trump administration. In, the Trump administration had a blank slate. They could have done whatever they wanted in leading the country. They could have brought the country together rather than divided it. Um, the Biden administration is stuck with people with their heels duck in, 30% of people saying they'll never get a vaccine. You know, some number of people thinking COVID's still a hoax. Uh, people sick to death of any kind of non-pharmaceutical intervention. So they're playing a much more difficult hand. So I'm a little more, um, I don't know, 
I feel a little less judgmental. <laughs> like, right, like right. I don't know. How, I don't know how I'd be doing either in this situation. Yeah, I, I want to take a step back uh, and ask you about sort of this bigger take on truth and information in our society, Michael, and and ask you about you know social media, but also cable TV and um, well, specifically Facebook and Google are making you know money through providing information that they don't necessarily vet. Of course, yep. that's, the, yep. that's the model. What should be done about all this? I mean, how can we attack it or address it? I guess is probably the right word. Well, you must have had this experience. I've had it over and over in my career where I write something uh, and I'm not the expert. Uh, I've written about experts and, and cable TV wants me to come on and pretend I'm the expert. I, I've had experiences, my first book, Liars Poker, where I wrote that I'm basically the story is never ask me for financial advice because I don't know what I'm doing with money. And people want me to come on TV and pretend like I'm an expert about money. There's this enormous pressure <laughs> for people to masquerade as experts when they actually aren't the expert and rewards for doing so. People recognize you on the street. Um, it, it's so for my, my list of prescriptions, hmm. we should ridicule this more. <laughs> that they should be in, on the level of like pretend expert. There should be much less tolerance of pretend experts. And, but, and gatekeepers should spend more time thinking about who actually knows. Now, in terms of policing misinformation, actual like willful misinformation, um, so I think, look, there, there are, I mean, the social media companies are not doing nothing. Uh, and there, there's one way is to deal with this problem is to regulate them so that they're, so they, they have to have more rules around what, what people can and can't say. I have a feeling that that's going to end up being, that's not going to, that that's going to, have limited use, that the misinformation is going to find other ways out. Um, I kind of think that you're talking about a big social problem, and the big social problem is how people consume and understand information. So I kind of think that we should be thinking and talking as a society about, you know, just basic things in our education system, that we need to teach people, kids, like how this stuff all works. Not that they don't mostly know, but um, it's like, it's, it's um, there, we have to become more sophisticated consumers of information. I think that's true. Otherwise you're just like ripe for this sort of exploitation. Um, I don't know, it's, it, it, I kind of think with this problem that if there was a, a solution, we'd have found it already. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I could be wrong. Um, I, I'm not, this may be like one of those problems that is not solvable, uh, that people, People want the want to hear what they want to hear, and they'll go. And people will 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 supply that information if there's a demand for it. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, it's not a comforting endpoint, no. but no. it's probably a realistic one. And you know, it's like houses catch on fire. We're never going to solve that. We just have to do a better job of mitigating. A so bit. Yeah, yeah, right. A little bit. I, I want to switch over and ask you about Wall Street, which, you know, you've written a lot about, as you suggest, Liar's Poker. By the way, did I ever tell you I almost was in the same class at you as Solomon Brothers, but I didn't you take the job? Yeah. You, where'd you go instead? 
I went to Columbia. I went to the journalism school instead. I had two offers. I had, I had accept, I was accepted to J school and accepted, I had a job offer at Salmon. So I, I regret not joining you there. We would have had you a lot of fun. You might've had the book. Yeah, I doubt it. You had the book. <laughs> anyway, so you had that book, you had Moneyball, which is, well, that's not really about Wall Street, of course, it's about money, but Flash Boys, of course. And well, let me ask you about Flash Boys and payment for order flow, which is yeah. maybe a small question, but what do you think about that? Well, on the face of it, it look, without diving into the plumbing of the, of the stock market, it is, it's incredible to me that um, high-frequency traders pay billions of dollars a year to stock brokerage firms to execute, to trade against the orders of their customers without anybody asking, what are they getting? <laughs> because the people who run those firms are now some of the richest people in the country, multi-billionaires. In the old days, when there were people on the New York Stock Exchange serving as the market makers in the stock market, they did well. They didn't become billionaires. They also didn't have, they didn't have days when they didn't lose money. I mean, we've seen the books of like virtue uh, or that we don't get the gl a glimpse of the books very often, but they brag that we don't have a single unprofitable trading day. So if you're actually a market maker taking risk in the market and, supp and supplying liquidity to the market, um, you have losing trading days. Yeah. Um, so this is no longer, except for the substantial high frequency trading and stock exchange smoke and fog machine, which has pumped millions of dollars in, into Washington and to public relations firms to try to make this thing really cloudy. Um, uh, I don't think anybody really has any illusions about exact about what's going on. So like, it's like, do they have the political will to shut it down? The last two administrations, this one and the last one, have been poking around at this, trying to figure out what you do about payment for order flow because it seems like a problem. Um, so what, what the reason I wrote Flash Boys, it, in some ways, it's you look at viewed from one angle, it's an inoffensive problem or not that big a deal. Because each, each trade, what's happening is pennies are being shaved off. It's tiny amounts of money. And it's really true that it's cheaper to trade in the stock market now than it was a long time ago when you paid a broker a ridiculous commission to execute your trade. Mm -hmm. But it's also really true that those pennies are unnecessary. Uh, and that when you add them up over the, across the whole market, it is billions of dollars. And you have people getting rich in this way and are examples of success to the rest of society when really what they're just doing is skimming rent, unnecessary rent. Um, and I think that's, it's sort of like morally offensive. Um, and it's not me talking. It's Brad Katsuyama at IX who investigated this thing for years and I think proved beyond a shadow of a doubt what was going on with all kinds of little science experiments in the market. Um, so it's been troubling to me that since the book came out, that it's how hard it's been for people at the SEC who find these practices offensive to actually make big change. Um, there's just so much political influence on the side of the people who are making the billions of dollars. Yeah, let me jump off that point when you said SEC, because I want to ask you, Michael, 
um, about a perspective I have, which is that the SEC is just becoming less and less effectual um, in, a, in a very significant way in that all the action is going to the parts of Wall Street that are not regulated by the SEC. I mean, you yourself were just talking about the B team and the A team, B team being investment bank, A team, private equity, venture, crypto, not under the purview of the SEC. Um, you know, look at Sand Hill Road, the valuations and the unicorns, all the action goes to those guys. It's not in the public markets. And the SEC is overseeing a smaller and smaller part of the financial services industry. Do you yeah. agree with that? And, and what are the consequences? If so, so that's true. I think it's, it's true. Um, one of the interesting consequences, I mean, there are all kinds of consequences, but one of the interesting consequences, in, it's in crypto, is that essentially a separate financial structure is being built alongside the old legacy financial structure. And this financial structure has several properties, but the one apropos of what we were just talking about is that it eliminates middlemen. Um, it, that if you are trading on a um, cryptocurrency exchange, you have an account with the exchange. You don't have an account with a broker who's moving your stuff on in and out of the exchange. They're not, they're not high frequency traders who are paying the cryptocurrency exchange for faster information about the exchange. Um, uh, the whole, the whole jerry-rigging of the stock market isn't happening there. It's, it's really clean in a funny way. I mean, I don't know about cryptocurrency itself, but, but the mechanisms that are being built to exchange this are far more egalitarian, more equal. Uh, the, the, the participants in the marketplace are not privileged in relation to one another in the same way they are in the stock market. And I think that the proof of concept outside of the regulated markets that you can actually run a market this way and it works really well and it's better for the individual investors may end up being persuasive when in the conversations about how we reform our regulated markets. Um, so that, that, so that's, I think that might be a big deal, might not. I mean, the whole thing may come crashing down because nobody, you know, crypto is an act of faith, right? It's like gold, like the dollar. Uh, but <laughs> and you don't know, you just, it's hard to judge, like impossible to judge whether that faith is sustainable or, or not. I don't know. But, but if the longer it goes on, the more of a threat it poses to the existing financial order. And I understand you were looking for a narrative, um, a story, maybe in this world of crypto to delve into as a future project. I mean, how would you do that? Is that is that in fact the case? I'm looking at it. I mean, it, it, there it's. I'm also looking at SEC football and six other worlds too. But I, it's. I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it because, um, in part, because I don't. I don't fully understand the implications of it, and I want to go learn about it. But it's also just feels you know, when it was just Bitcoin, or when it was just a few coins way back when. And it was just a handful of libertarians in Silicon Valley who were really interested in this. And the sums of money were not that big. I had trouble getting interested because I, I still have trouble seeing it as money. Like I think that if in some weird world uh, for millennia we'd been using Bitcoin and someone invented the US dollar, they'd say, oh my God, this is so much better. It's, this is not, it's, they're fixing a problem that doesn't exist and in, introducing new problems. But as a, 
Anna, a casino, or as a, a new kind of gold, maybe it works um, if everybody kind of agrees upon it. That's the cabinet. Everybody has to kind of agree. And more and more people are agreeing uh, to the point where just the cryptocurrency market itself is like worth, the cryptocurrencies are worth like $2 trillion. And on top of that, you've got, I don't know, 500 billion, a trillion dollars in companies in crypto. Um, and that it starts to have these really dramatic distortive effects on the world when that kind of wealth is created that fast. It's kind of, I mean, I'm trying to think of what precedent there is for this. Yeah. I can't really think of any. It's just the speed with which it's happened. That really interests me. Uh, it's sort of like the, the knock-on real-world effects of, of this kind of really rapid wealth creation, which could easily also turn out to be, you know, not go poof. But even that's, that's interesting too. So it's just that volatility interests me a lot. And, and I, I haven't figured out exactly how to tell a story in it, but I'm, I am interviewing people and trying to figure it out. I want to ask you about inequality uh, a little bit here. When, in the big short, you talked about how uh, the financial crisis in 2008 uh, is a legacy that still lives with us or will be living with us. So, so how do you think that we're still defined by what happened in 2008 and is part of that inequality? God, that's an interesting question. I, you know, 2008 was a momentous year because um, it's not just the financial crisis. The financial crisis right away gives us Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrency, also gives us the Tea Party, which leads to Trump. Um, and I do think, and this is like something you couldn't prove in a, in a lab, but this is just like me talking. Um, I think it changed the relationship of the broader society to it's a it's economy and it's politics it's political process that i think up until that moment ordinary americans could tell themselves yeah life can be harsh yes cap you know this capitalist system we you know they're winners and losers and some and i lost or i might lose or i feel stressed or um but we're all kind of playing the same game and after 2008 the narrative changed it's Yes, almost all of us are playing the same game, except the elites on Wall Street who get a rigged system. If they fail, they don't fail. If they fail, they get propped up by the government and they get their big bonuses and they get to go right back to normal. The people who have the most privilege are, are skewing the society to their advantage. That created a rancor uh, that was seems seen in a bitterness and an anger that feels new. Now, of course, it's mixed up with lots of other stuff that's going on. So it's hard to just isolate this as a, as a, a cause of anything. But I, I think that we still live with that. And, um, and on this other side of this is, I think American prestige in the world took a huge blow in 2008. Because whatever else people might have thought of us, they thought we knew what we were doing with money. They tr you know, the, our, our bankers ruled the world in some ways. And I think suspicion of, if you go to Germany right now and ask a typical German financier what he thinks about American financiers, I bet you get a different kind of answer than you would have gotten 15 years ago or 16 years ago. Um, so it, it's, uh, I, I do feel, I feel like we, we are still in some ways living in the post-financial crisis world. Um, and, there, and, and the big part of it is that there was never any obvious um, 
uh, reckoning of or, uh, kind of punishment of the people who should have been punished kind of thing. People didn't see, they didn't, they didn't have their need for vengeance slight. Right. Quick last question, Michael, what are you, what are you looking to do going forward? Just generally in, in the big so the, picture. So the big picture, the pattern of my writing life is alternating between books and podcast seasons. Uh, and they really, it's almost like literary cross-training. They really work well together. And I think it's kind of like making me better to do both. Um, and the, then the only question is the subjects. And as you say, I've gotten very interested in this part of the financial world, cryptocurrency, but there's also a part of me that longs to find another sports book for a very simple reason. Um, it's very hard to write about a lot of subjects and get to everybody right now. That people's, people's guard is up. Um, so if you write about the pandemic, you instantly it's being filtered through, is this pro-Trump, is this anti-Trump? Is it, what does it mean for the right, for the left, all that? You can't just tell the story. Uh, people won't just read the story. You can still do that with sports and, and smuggle in all kinds of other stuff, but people's guard aren't, isn't up about sports in the same way. So I've been kicking around the sports world too. Right, so maybe another blind side or money ball, something like that, which is the yeah. Come out, perhaps. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Michael Lewis, award-winning author and journalist and host of the podcast, Against the Rules. Thanks so much for joining us. Total pleasure. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwork.